0: I would probably talk to my like 23, 24 year old self and tell her that you don't have to just be one thing.
1: you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. All right, everybody. We are back on track with our weekly Friday release schedule. I hope you enjoyed the two transformative episodes we dropped over the holidays. My new friend, Charlie Rocket, my old friend, Jay Ferruja. If you didn't listen to those, go check them out. And now that we're up and running, we're starting with Jessica Blank, because I believe that story is really useful for you to think about as you're writing your own story in 2019. In 2002, The Exonerated took off Broadway by storm. It was written by Jessica and her husband, Eric Jensen. The way they put it together was fascinating. She tells us all about it. I remember being riveted when I saw it, as was everyone else, by the real-life transcripts of death row inmates that were spun into monologues for actors. Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon eventually helped it become a feature film, and Jessica and Eric have gone on to produce a lot more work. She does many things, and here she shares her thoughts on the power of story and its uses— regardless of what walk of life you may be pursuing. We talk structure, process, compassion, collaboration, and more. If you're in the arts, this conversation is essential. If you're not, It's still fascinating and, I believe, much more useful to you than you probably realize. In fact, later this year, we plan to offer a 10,000 Nose journal from our website so you can have the space to start writing your own story. If you've heard my story, you know my journal played a very important part in helping me take the leap from college lacrosse player to professional actor. But enough about me and my merchandise. Let's get some inspiration from Jessica Blank.
0: to me everything that i do is actually kind of all part of the same thing
1: i would um, agree with that i actually think that maybe this the the interview has begun that's a beautiful opening line um because and and i feel the same way which is that you if you line everything up it doesn't feel so overwhelming if if like all of your different goals are kind of going in somewhat the same direction. They're they're all helping each other a little bit.
0: Absolutely. I mean, like you can look at my bio and you can be like, oh my God, you're a playwright and you're a theater director and you're a screenwriter and you're a film director and you write for TV and you're an actor and you write novels and you coach and you work with narrative and social change. But to me, like all of those things are just different ways of saying that I work with story right like the the principles of story are the same from medium to medium and i'm a structure nerd so i'm interested in what is the underlying framework that's actually the same among all of those different mediums and then what are the like sort of subtle differentiations between the different forms but to me it's all of a piece it would be i think it would be a different thing if i was like also a A visual artist, right? Or a musician or something. Then it would be like, okay, I'm speaking multiple different languages. But to me, everything that I do is in the language of story.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Everything. And then you also coach people, but that's also about enhancing their ability to deal with story.
0: Um, Yeah. I coach writers and I coach actors and then I coach, um, leaders and change makers from progressive candidates to nonprofit leaders, but I'm coaching them and using story tools.
1: I love it. I love that you've taken it. And I, I feel like a, uh, a mini version of that in a way with this podcast, because it's, it's become, um, a platform in a way, not a platform, but just like a, a medium in which I can, express myself and also learn about people and, and characters and it, it feeds my acting, it feeds my writing, and it feels the same way you said it, it feels aligned with what I'm already doing. It's just a another version of it. Totally. Totally. Um, but I, I am, so are you, are you like a, Is Joseph Campbell and, and his teachings, is that something that's kind of ingrained into you or what, when you think, when you say you're a story structure nerd, what are, <laughs> who, who are some of the people who have influenced you in that realm?
0: I'm so happy when I get to nerd out on story structure and anybody will indulge me about it. So yes, I am Joseph Campbell obsessed. I mean, he's, because he's, you know, he was a genius and he was a, um, he was a, A systems thinker right and he was looking at all of the patterns of all the world's mythologies and looking for the underlying shared patterns which is something that I'm really interested in right without erasing the distinctions and the differences and so I believe that every art form has its own sacred geometry in other words its own set of sort of pre-existing mathematical principles that the art form is working with. So if you play music, you're working with chords and scales and music theory. And we all understand, right, intuitively that there's like a math to that, right? right? If you're a visual artist, you're working with compositional geometry. So I think that the underlying narrative structures that Campbell discovered in his work are the sacred geometry of story. Right? I think they are pre-existing principles or structures that our brains are wired to respond to in certain ways. And there's neuroscience backing this up too. Right, And so... When we're working with story, I don't believe in talent. I don't believe talent is a thing, and I believe it's a very unhelpful concept largely, right? And one of the reasons why I don't believe in talent is because I think, you know, when we think about, oh, so a story is great because the person who created it is a talented storyteller, it obscures the craft of what they're actually doing. What they're actually doing is working with these pre existing almost mathematical structures in a skillful way and also pouring their own self and specificity and point of view and authenticity and emotional expression into that, right? Right. Just like a musician interpreting a piece of classical music, right? So I am a total hero's journey nerd. I think that the hero's journey, or at least the broad strokes of the hero's journey, are a piece of what we are wired to respond to. And I believe that the reason why Hollywood has organized itself around the hero's journey is because our response to it is reliable. When a craftsperson is working with that narrative structure, the sort of singular protagonist who we identify with, who faces an inciting incident that disrupts their life and sends them on a quest, and they have to overcome obstacles and escape dangers in pursuit of a goal and become transformed by that, we, we respond to that reliably, right? And Hollywood has figured that out and they spend a lot of, Hollywood spends a lot of money making the things that Hollywood makes. So they have to have some, some structures to work with that can be counted on and aren't just totally subjective, right? Right. So I think that the totally reduced to the quantifiable parts of it, hero's journey that we see sometimes in Hollywood movies is um is a sort of underuse of the power of story right it's not that it's not still entertaining for the 2 hours that we're in the movie theater if a, if a movie's just sort of like playing by the numbers in a well crafted way but it neglects the transformative potentiality of story to work to just work with the bones. Right. So what I'm interested in, in my own work, which is kind of a laboratory for this. And then what I teach to my clients is a sort of expansion of the Campbell model that grounds everything in character. And I have a model about of how to build character that's like grounded in neuroscience and Jung and psychoanalysis and really actually taking what we know from developmental neurobiology and all of these fields that study actually how we form as human beings and learning to like, form characters the way that human beings are actually formed right to construct like a full character psychology and then build your narrative structure out of that and I think that's the piece that's like often neglected and when it's not neglected that's when you see work that really blows us away right and I'm an actor and I came to acting first like my entry point for story was acting and the actor is the site of the empathic identification, right? That's right. where the audience hooks into the story. So to me, that's where like all the juice is, right? When you look at the fact that like, it's actually in our neuroscience, it's actually wired into us to empathically identify with characters when they're created in a three-dimensional way. To me, like that opens up so many possibilities because what it means is that story is a technology for triggering empathy and like just imagine what we can do with that
1: which you have done to masterful effect we talked a little bit about the exonerated i don't want to get there yet even though i want to talk about that and and other work of yours i'm fascinated by what you're saying so i want to i want to stick (laughs) here um I have a similar experience where my entry point is as an actor, but I have studied story structure. I was an English major and, um, you know, Joseph Campbell, I've done like the Robert McKee story seminar and Mm -hmm. I've read the books. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking when you said about... uh, Talent versus, you, you know, that saying it's just talent kind of undermines the craft. Um, I am a big fan of of the film Traffic that Steven Soderbergh directed, mm-hmm. and Steven Gagan. I've seen this. I don't know if you saw it. It was like a lecture he gave um, at the WGA, and somebody asked him about uh story structure and he kind of railed against you know the books that talk about the you know that go through the structure and he's like no you don't need that just do it and i thought yeah but that's you're really talented and it's probably ingrained in you and what i think is some of the books that i've used as as resources i always say they are very Powerful resources in the right hands and they're dangerous in the wrong hands because kind of what you're saying. If you just look at them like go from A to B to C, do exactly what they say, yeah, it's not going to work. But there are tenets, there there are truths about story, and like you're saying, and and how people respond to them, and the tra- the transformations that happen, and yeah. you know, so so I, I'm fascinated by the way you're very articulate, and I I, I want to go further in this this idea of that you're talking about um, creating character and thinking through their psychology and and the Jungian approach because I've had that with acting coaches that have, I've done like dream work with them. So I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear how you apply that to your
0: writing. Absolutely. Well, so I think um, I'm really interested in developmental neurobiology, which is basically it's neuro, it's a field within neuroscience, but that also integrates a lot of Psych, what we understand from psychology as well right that looks at how our identities and our personalities are actually formed by our early attachment relationships right so if you look at how our brains form our most the vast majority of our personality and our identity is formed before age five right? And our brains keep developing up until age 25. That's when they basically reach a steady state. Um, but then, after that, there's something that I love called neuroplasticity, which is about the patterns that the grooves that are formed in our brains in those early years can evolve and change throughout our lives,
1: yeah, so, and if anybody's uh, listening and I've had people on the podcast that that are um, you know hypnotherapists and meditation teachers talk about neuroplasticity and Changing those grooves consciously. Yeah. Through meditation yeah. and thought patterns. And
0: neuroplasticity is amazing. And to me, it actually dovetails perfectly with character transformation within story structure, right? Like, so I look at the whole thing through that lens, right? Like, when a character is moving through a story and being transformed in the process of pursuing their goal and overcoming obstacles, and encountering dangers, what's happening actually is that they're the grooves in their brain are changing. Right. So that, so that's like later, but sort of reverse engineering, going back to the beginning, the way that I work is starting with character first and creating characters that feel like fully formed three-dimensional human beings. And, The best way that I've found to build this out is through a bunch of different exercises that draw upon what we understand from developmental neurobiology and various other fields of human study about how it is that we actually form right and what neurobiologists know is that we are formed the most immediately and the most deeply by our earliest attachment relationships, whether that's with one parent or two parents or a grandparent, whoever is there to take care of us, the way in which they respond or don't respond or respond sometimes, but not others to us forms the bedrock of how we expect the world to be and the world that we create. Right? So, When I'm designing a character or teaching somebody else how to design a character, like that's the first thing that we look at, right? And then we move from that to track all of the important pivotal relationships all the way up through childhood, which includes the first projection of, of authority or attachment relationship outside of the parents, which is teachers, Right? Our teachers at young at young ages are really, really important. They're usually the earliest adults in our life outside of our family yeah. who shape us and tell us who we are and shape our beliefs and understandings about who we are and how we relate. And then we sort of track it up through school, looking at important social relationships and social positioning, because I also see us as human beings as embedded in the social systems and structures that we live in right so to me when i'm looking at creating a character i'm also looking at okay what social conditions did they grow up in like what was their what were their parents jobs was there enough food in the house did they have to go to work when they were a kid in order to support their family what does that do psychologically to the family dynamic so looking at social conditions and where we're placed systemically and things like our class position etc as like intersecting directly with our psychology from a very very early age
1: yeah yeah Uh, what i love is like how exhaustive it is uh, the way you're speaking it's like i've um i i've always described myself as like a closet writer who is now writing more regularly and i i literally just finished a second draft of a screenplay that I'm intending to, to make. And so I'm really in it and I'm loving what you're talking about and what I've found. Um, I get excited by the way you're talking about the character development. And then there's also a part of me when, when I, what I've been finding more success with lately is toggling back and forth between you know, working on character, going back, working on story, going and kind of going back and forth. Whereas in the past I would get hung up. If I didn't know everything about the character, I would kind of be at a stalemate with myself and Mm -hmm. I'd be, I couldn't get out of the garage. You know, I'm just like sitting in there. I can't get it going. Um, How do you coach your clients do you just do all of this background work on the protagonist or do you kind of as it's coming to you like how does that process work for you is yeah, it different well, so
0: i have a few different ways of working so i work um i do work with private clients and when i'm working one-on-one with somebody everything that i'm doing is very tailored to their specific process because all of us are different as creators right I also have an online course that is like the complete step-by-step methodology that's 14 modules that guides you through from the beginning. So there is a linear order that I basically work with, but you know, I pick up with clients what sometimes I'll pick up with somebody once they already have a draft of something or they right. have two-thirds of a draft or whatever. So, you know, we'll we'll tailor that to their specific needs. But the the thing that i begin with is that kind of character work on a protagonist right because that's to me that's what you're building your story structure out of yeah right so all of that character development work is done to make the character the central character fully three dimensional and then you look for two things what in the work that you've already done that is situated and nested in story and backstory, right? What is their core wound? What's the primary trauma that is embedded in their identity formation somewhere along the line that shaped who they are and what they think they're capable of. And that we know obviously as an audience is keeping them from full self actualization, like the thing that they need to heal. Right. And you know, what all these fields of human study know about human beings is that actually healing is totally friggin' terrifying, right? And that like, actually, when we're dealing with a deep wound, our brain and ourselves have all kinds of organizational methods to like repress that wound and create coping mechanisms around it so that we don't actually have to face it because it's scary to face it, right? So yeah. you're looking for the core wound and then you're looking for, what I talk about in terms of the default network. So that is something the default network is another concept from neuroscience. It's a, a set of regions in the brain that neuroscientists have figured out fire up when we're not focused on something specific or in specific relationship to anybody. Like when our brains are at rest, there's a network of regions in the brain that focus on ruminating on the past fantasizing about the future and self-concept right so it's like our basic the basic grooves that are and it looks a little different for every person like everybody all of us have different grooves all of us have different coping mechanisms right different like baseline ways that we think about ourselves and the world right so you're looking for the core wound and then you're looking for how the character's default network works. In other words, what are their coping mechanisms? What ways of being have they sort of standardized for themselves to set up so that they can get through life and get by and do what they want to do without having to actually deal with and confront the core wound. Right. Mm. And then you create an inciting incident that's going to bust open their status quo and their usual way of being. And then you are going to design the quest and the goal piece of the Joseph Campbell thing in such a way that it is designed to gradually disrupt their default network, take away their coping mechanisms, and force them into deeper confrontation with their core wound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love, God, I love this. This is, I, I put it in different words. I love your, uh, the way you articulate it.
0: Thank you. Well, so then, so then it's like you're creating story out of character, right? So that the, all of that character work becomes an engine so that you're never trying to figure out, Oh, well, what should I do next with my plot? Or like, I have to think of something interesting or like, how do I raise the stakes? Because you always have everything that you have built out and understand about your character as your compass and your guide. Right. Right. And then, and then I do think later that kind of character work becomes important on major secondary characters as well. Um, but you can go back and do that second once I think you have the protagonist. I mean, I have work... I'm, I'm launching a bonus course to the story, the main story structure course in a few months that is about episodic storytelling, right? Because when you're writing for television... Sometimes you have a protagonist, but even when you have a single, a strong single protagonist, you still have an ecosystem of characters around them. Right. And so when you're designing your series regulars for a television series, you're actually designing an ecosystem of people whose quests interface and conflict with each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's I, I always think of it as um you know you take your char- you have your character that you it's funny I'm actually feeling good about my script right now awesome. and listening to you because I did whether or not it was as designed as that I have notes in my computer as far back as 2012 for this character that I had been working on me I had written different versions of it and when I finally got serious with it 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 really started with character and the way i describe it which is i think similar to you is that you start with this character and then this this catalyst will put them through something and it's like put you put your character in a vice and you tighten it and tighten it and tighten it and what pops out at the end is their true their true being, you know, that's Absolutely. that's where their or their self actual actualized. Uh, I can't I can't even say it. Actualized, actualized, actualized. actualized there suffice. you go. There you go. Um, but but um, yeah. Well, and the, it doesn't it doesn't
0: surprise me at all to hear you say that you found that you were doing this already in creating a script because you're an actor and. Right. This is where I'm, I'm launching an online course uh, in early November called From Actor to Creator that is geared specifically towards actors who want to start to write or who want to start to create their own work, right? And part of, even though my primary work is with creators, storytellers, writers, I, I am an actor, I You know, coach actors on the side some and I and I feel like such an actual like there's such a need that I keep finding whenever I'm working with actors for information about the tiny perspective shift that it takes to actually cross over into writing from being an actor, which is a shift that I've made myself. And I feel like I can guide people through it because as an act to me, character is everything, right? To me, character is where all great writing comes from. And you can, like, I just explained, build story directly out of that. And as an actor, we already know so much about character. Like we already know things about character that successful writers in Hollywood are like, trying to crack and it's very mysterious and get me somebody who's good with character to do a polish on the script. You know what I mean? Like, but we, that's what we do, right? Like when we build characters out so we can play them, so we can inhabit them, so we can make them three-dimensional human beings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go on. Sorry.
0: Coming to writing, from that perspective i think a lot of actors think of it as very intimidating to cross over into writing because the people on the other side of the table are doing this like very mysterious thing and we don't understand how it works and they must be talented writers right (laughs) and all of that stuff but actually I mean, I've already debunked the idea of talent, right? Like talent, it doesn't exist. Talent is about craft, right? It's about learning to work with specific tools. And as an actor, one of the major tools that's needed in order to create story is something we already have a ton of facility with.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and we can, that's one thing that I found is a uh, an advantage as an actor when writing is that you can put yourself into the scene. You know, you're sitting at your desk or you're walking around in your office and and working it y- your way through scenes. And th- hopefully, if if you've been doing this for a while, you can at least have uh, a BS detector. So you know when things <laughs> don't work and you know when you wouldn't want to play a scene that's written the way you've written it. So I, I often say that. I say, you know, it might take me longer than a, a professional writer, but... I know if I keep pushing at it eventually I'll have something good because I do know I can feel when something is well written and it's not. Yep. I, so I know when I'm there. I just it just takes me a little while to get there. But I but at least that's an advantage of being able to try on the scenes, you know, put them on their feet and and work through them and I've actually found you know the last maybe it's a year or half a year for myself my writing has been the most the most fun for me in terms of of the process of it because i've just i i feel like i lose myself in the story i work my way through it and i'm less precious about what will if i get notes from someone that i respect i'm like yep i can look at it and go yeah we'll slash that and we'll we'll as long as i know why i'm doing something then i can i can get there you know right
0: well absolutely and i mean i think like one of the things that i talk about when I'm talking to writers about character construction is creating characters that have ecological, psychological integrity, right? Where you've built that the backstory and who they, in relationship to who they are enough that you understand how all of the parts fit together, right? And how all of the internal parts of who they are were formed. And then you can build out how those parts are coming into play and in determining their actions as they move through the narrative. And just like you were talking about as actors, that's actually something that we understand intuitively because when something is playable, when something feels playable, it's because the character has been constructed with ecological, psychological integrity. It's, because the writer understands how, who that character is and how who they are is determining their actions and what they do. Right. And things feel unplayable when the writer hasn't made that connection. When it's right. like, that's when you get the, why would my character do this? I don't understand, <laughs> right? Because right. it's not hooked up.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, here now I'm having like a little internal conflict because I kind of want to go down this rabbit hole with you for a long time, but I also in in the spirit of uh, of the podcast, I I kind of want to segue to something that fascinates me about you, and I'd love for you to talk to our audience about because it's it's kind of a theme that runs through. Is you, you know, I I often talk about. Uh, you know, one taking things that are that are maybe negatives or rejections and kind of reframing them and turning them into something that that's an asset, but also about kind of following the string of inspiration to create something for yourself and and I believe and I don't I don't know exactly how you guys worked on this but the exonerated what what fascinates me about it and you can kind of just give a little uh your explanation of it for our listeners to hear um but what I what, what it seems from the outside you did was start with just kind of the the interest in going wow there are people on on death row and what are they going through and and are they innocent or what and then it turned into this thing that that became really like I, I it was a zeitgeist kind of project. I remember being in New York I told you this I went and saw it and uh, it was around forever and then you made a movie with with big stars and it, it really became something huge and I'm just I want you to kind of if you don't mind, walk us through how the exonerated came to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was a crazy, wild thing and it wanted to exist and it used us for several years in order to come into being in the world. So in 2000, I had just moved to New York and I was going to acting school And, um, that was back in the 20th century or the very beginning of the 21st century when you had to decide what thing you were going to be and be that one thing, or else you weren't serious at it. Now you're allowed to be a hyphenate, which is what I've actually always been. Um, Hmm. and I, but I was pursuing acting cause I figured, okay, I have to pick one thing and I have to get hired as an actor in order to do it. I already wrote, but I was like, I can always just write on my own and I don't have to build a career as a writer in order to just write. So, um, I met this guy and we started going out. We're, we've now been married for like 17 years Congratulations. <laughs> and, um, and I brought him to a conference on the death penalty at Columbia University. I've always been an activist and engaged in social, political stuff. And I was going to this and I asked him if he wanted to come. And he likes to say it was early in our relationship when he would still say yes to anything I asked him to do. (laughs) And we went to a conference, a workshop at the conference on a group of cases Um, called the death row 10, which were all guys that had confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander who was found to have done that and fired. But these guys, some of whom had no other evidence against them, were still sitting there in prison, some of them on death row. So we heard a lecture about the cases. We saw some sort of 60 minute style documentary footage, and it was all disturbing, but on an intellectual level. But then the organizers had set up a call from one of the guys in prison, and they hooked the cell phone up to a speaker, so that for a few minutes, he was talking to us in the room. And he didn't say anything earth shattering. He just told us his story. But by the time the call was cut off, everybody in the room was in tears. And Eric looked around the room and he was kind of like, well, this is BS though, because like we're at a death penalty conference, like everybody who's here already cares. Like these aren't the people that need to be having this experience. And we started writing notes to each other in the back of the law school classroom about how you get around that problem. And now Eric had been in New York working as an actor for 10 years already at that point. He was primarily an actor, although he is also a hyphenate by nature and was doing all kinds of other things on the side and had a band and whatever. But professionally speaking, he was an actor. Um, And we were both... Like documentary theater geeks. Like I was a huge Anna DeVere Smith nerd. She's always been a big model for me. And Eric had crossed paths with professionally with Moises Kaufman several times, who at that point was still developing the Laramie Project. So we got the idea in that conversation to make a documentary play, to travel around the country and interview exonerated death row inmates. So people who had been wrongly convicted, sent to death row, and then freed amidst overwhelming evidence of innocence, right? We talked to people after they were out. And we would make a play from their words. So we didn't know how to do that. We had no idea. (laughs) Like, no idea at all. So basically we went home and we did a bunch of research and then we started calling every single person we knew. We called playwright friends. We said, how do you write a play? We called journalist friends. We said, how do you do an interview? We called uh, legal and nonprofit friends and said, how on earth are we going to get in touch with these death row exonerees and get them to talk to us? We just kept reaching out over and over. And um, one of the people that we spoke to was a guy named Alan Bushman who runs the Culture Project, who both of us knew from being actors downtown. And he said, this was like May of 2000, he said, great, I'll give you my theater for free for three nights this fall. If you have something up in time for the elections, here's a $1,000, go. So we took that one little yes that we had, which that $1,000 was not enough to fund all of our travel and, you know, even in the roughest of ways, like we rented a car and we slept in the car on the road and drove all over the United States, but even $1,000 wouldn't have even paid for that by itself, but we just used it to start, right? And we just kept taking the one next step forward through that part of the process without having to have it all figured out like we just like there were many times that summer when we were about to run out of money but we just kept scheduling the next interviews and (laughs) right and like How,
1: how old were you at this time jessica
0: i was 24 okay um and eric i think was 29 okay um And so, I mean, so some of it was that too, right? Like some of it was like, I was young enough. We were both young enough that we were like, whatever, we don't know how to do it. It's cool. Let's just figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've actually tried to bring, we have both tried to bring that mindset into everything we've continued to do. Right. Eric once said very early on in our collaboration that the three most beautiful words in the English language next to I love you are I don't know. And that's sort of been a something we keep coming back to is just embracing I don't know, right? And identifying what you don't know that you need to know in order to do what you want to do and then finding the people that know it, right? Mm. So as we were doing that work that summer, one of the people we reached out to was an actor named Bob Balaban. If anybody's an actor nerd, they'll know who he is. He's a totally. brilliant character actor who's been in all the things and everybody knows his face he's a brilliant director too and he directed eric in a play off broadway and eric reached out to him when we had like you know some transcripts that were kind of a play but like not a play yet and said would you be interested in directing one of these readings in the fall and bob said let me see what you have and we sent it to him and he called us back and he said Yes, I will come on board. I will direct all three of the readings. And do you mind if I show this to some friends? And we said, no, of course not. Go ahead and show it to whoever you want. And he called us back two weeks after that. He said, Susan and Tim are going to do the first reading. So Susan's Rand and then Tim Robbins. So then all of a sudden we were like, whoa, we have to make something good.
1: (laughs) I love this story. I suspected it was something like this. I love it. Okay, It was
0: wild. And like, and so, and you know, the whole time we were like, like I said, we didn't know how to write a play, but we were both actors and we knew how to work with actors and Alan had given us space and we had a wonderful community of actors who were underemployed wonderful, brilliant people. So when we came back from being on the road with these and got these transcripts together, we just started calling up our actors, our actor friends and said, saying like, we have a room. Will you come read these transcripts out loud with us? And what happened was we started editing by ear. We started hearing... What was Because everything that everybody said to us in the interview room was fascinating, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's dramatically and narratively going to translate to the stage. So hearing the transcripts read by actors showed us almost immediately, like, what was, what was stage-worthy, right? What felt like dialogue rather than just a conversation, right? Like, what wasn't just an interesting thing that somebody said, but was really part of the core of the story? And what we started discovering was the things that felt stage-worthy were stories it was when people would speak in story right and so we would you know edit by ear in the room with the actors go home type those edits into the computer come back with new pages that were slightly condensed the next day and repeat that process over and over and over again until gradually, organically, monologues started to emerge. And then we would start juxtaposing the monologues with each other, again, using the actors the whole time. So we just started with what we knew how to do, which was listen to actors and hear whether it was effective or not, right? And we wound up devising a writing process that we've then used for every other documentary play we've made since then. Like, we figured out a technique for creating documentary theater. But we did it, again, just by, like, putting one foot in front of the other working with what we knew and seeing what worked, right? And if something didn't work, we would discard it. And if it worked, we'd lean into it and keep doing it, right? So those first three readings, Susan and Tim, their participation was incredible. And I I didn't really understand how celebrity worked back then. I didn't quite get how amazing the thing that they did for us was by coming on board and saying yes to doing something public when there was nobody else attached who was like them and Eric and I didn't have any track track record or, and and they didn't even really have a script. Like it, it was really, I mean, they were extremely dedicated to the issue and they knew Bob, but it was really about them being behind the issue that they said yes. And their participation opened the door for all kinds of other actors to then be willing to read the script and come on board that wouldn't have necessarily looked at it otherwise. So We did those three readings. Um, We got the, the play at that point, I think, had 10 or 11 stories in it. The big piece of feedback we got was that it was too much. It was too crowded, right? And so we learned something from that. Like, people couldn't fully get on the ride of the characters because there were too many of them. So we got a good little lesson in sort of how empathic identification works and how much space there is for people to really hook in. We narrowed down the number of stories in the play to six. We went back into all of their court transcripts and case files and integrated some of that material. So we did that over about the next year and a half. And we wound up opening off Broadway in 2002 and a play ran for two years and then, you know, did a national tour and got made into a movie and did a whole bunch of other things also. But, you know, really we, had like no credentials when we started at all. And we figured it out as we went along.
1: This is what I'm, I'm so excited. I I just want anybody listening right now, you know, I I talk about this all the time. I feel like I talk about this, but it's so, it it is so cool for me to have a guest on who actually did this and to just go, see, (laughs) like it (laughs) It works. Like, I mean, I know that for for every one of the, you know, every story like The Exonerated, there are probably a thousand where it didn't turn out this way. I get that. But there are just so many lessons in what you guys did. And it is is so inspiring to hear that. And I, I feel like I'm constantly saying that, like, you know, you don't need to know, you don't need to see the entire path. You just... You and and I, I may have even said this on the podcast, but I recently, um, through a friend who was a guest on the podcast, hung out with a guy who was a Navy SEAL, and I have some friends that were SEALs, and I always ask them because I, I'm so interested in mindset, and he, I asked him about Hell Week, and he said that's how he got through Hell Week. He said mm-hmm. I knew if I looked at the entire week, I couldn't. I wasn't going to get through it, but I knew if they told me I had to go 50 yards, I could get 50 yards and yeah. I would just take those 50 steps and I'd look back and I'd go, what's next? And then yeah. I'd go a little further. And and that's what you did. And it's so cool to hear how it it just mushroomed like that. It's become your career. I mean, it's incredible to me.
0: Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, speaking to the like, it's not always going to be what like a juggernaut. It's not always going to hit. I mean, that's really true. And in the, in this project with The Exonerated, we really almost from the beginning had the experience that it really wanted to exist in the world in a way that was larger than us. There were a lot of synchronicities that came together to sort of we made the leap and then a lot of synchronicities converged to sort of support the project after we made that first leap. And it wound up doing a lot of good in the world and, be, and being an, having an impact on policy and all of that. And like, it didn't only do that because it was good work, right? It did that because a lot of factors outside of our control also converged. But what I experienced through that process is that you never know when those other supportive factors are going to want to converge around the work. Right. And they don't, if you don't take the first step. Right. right. So our agent said uh, somewhere along the li- life of the exonerated, he was like, you know, it's probably never going to happen like this ever again. Right. Like, this is like not. <laughs> what's happening and we were like sure yes we do get it and we we are not going to have the expectation that it's going to be this crazy huge thing every time but you know what I've found is I've continued to make work and we've continued to go out there is that if we show up in the same way with every project then the project winds up doing what it wants to do and you don't know what that is from the beginning right like I can say oh I really want my film to go to Sundance, but like, I don't know if it's actually supposed to go to Sundance. And if that's the best path for the film, it might be much more successful or reach who it's supposed to reach by going a different route. Right. Uh Uh So it's not on me to control the how of how any project does its work in the world. It's on me to show up and do the work and diligently take the next right step every time and put everything that I have as an artist into doing that. And when you do that, everything else converges.
1: Hmm. I love that. I love that. What? Oh, man, there's something you've just like, blowing my mind with uh this story. I mean, what would you say your advice to people that are listening knowing that I guess that that is the advice right there is is sh- show up and do the work regardless of the outcome. I guess it's you know, you hope for the best, but if you really stick to the fundamentals, is what you're saying, it, it, that's and you're open to inspiration, you have a better chance at success.
0: Yes, in, absolutely. In Absolutely. And I think, you know, another barometer that has been really important to us, again, from the very beginning, from very early on in The Exonerated, is not looking at in ter- when we're actually making the work, but actually even in the process of putting it out there, too, not looking at whether something is good or bad, but looking at whether it works. Right. So it's not. And that keeps sort of the inner critic out of the creative process, too. It's like I'm not going to judge whether whatever monologue we're listening to or scene we're looking at is good or not. It's like, is it working or not? Is is it what it wants to be or not? And if it's not working, what is it that could be changed? And tinkered with in order to make it work. How right? would you
1: define it's working or it's not working? How would you define that? Like connecting with an audience or? Wh- well, what? I
0: mean, the first step before it's in front of an audience is about just us as artists, right? It's like we're using our own barometer and our own, you know, you were talking about your sort of intuitive sense of around character when you're writing about like whether something is really clicking or not right so the first step is that it's like does this feel right does it feel like it's in the groove you know and there's two of us so we always have a nice socratic dialogue like one of us will sometimes think that something is working and the other one stays more rigorous and is like "Eh, not quite you know what i mean right and we'll move with it until we think it's chugging along and then yeah and then there's all kinds of stages of like you Give your script to a friend that you trust or a trusted colleague to read, or you show it to a coach, or you have a reading and you see how the actors respond to it, or whatever. There's all these sort of micro steps of starting to get feedback gradually before you put it all the way into the marketplace, right? And those are other diagnostics, yeah? So, and everybody's subjective and I'm not suggesting that any writer listen only to every single note they get from everybody. But like, you know, you listen for the commonalities, right? If you put something up in front of 10 people say, and five people have a version of like the same, uh, this moment, I had a question about it and I'm not sure, then that's a piece of feedback about that moment's not working.
1: Right. Right. Right, that that's what I always say. It's like if you put it, you, you, it's very interesting. Like trying to get it, the interpretation of notes, I have come to realize is really, <laughs> it's really hard. big. It, it really is because you don't know how engaged someone was when they were reading. You don't know what they're bringing to the table, and so I, I think you're right. When if you if you if ten people are reading it or watching it or whatever it is, it's when you find those when you find those common even if they can't articulate it when i guess being open to okay they're obviously having they're bumping up against something in this section there's something in there that's off in some way right. if 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 8 out of 10 people are saying the same roughly the same thing at the at the same part and then it's just figuring out okay what what is the what is the adjustment that's going to that's going to kind of solve that in a way
0: right because the reason they're bumping up against it might not have anything to do with the reason they're giving you right because they they don't don't know know exactly why yeah yeah for what for why it's not working for them that may or may not be anywhere close to the truth Yeah. yeah but the fact that it's not working is important information
1: yeah well you you know what i i find um I'm really kind of fascinated with in in hearing you is you're reminding me your process is reminding me of what I know of Mike Lee, how he, Mm -hmm. he casts actors and then he has them. I I believe it's kind of like through improv and rehearsals, they work, they kind of like workshop a script. And I'm, and I'm thinking about like the way you went about doing it, or it seems like you've now repeated that and you go about doing it is, is a a built-in way to make sure that things are resonating truthfully because you're, you're actually constantly in front of other people or engaging other people, which is like, you know, sometimes I find as a writer, I'm afraid to get it out there. And then you, you think it's great. And then you start to talk and people like (laughs) cloud over and you're like, "Mm, maybe it was good in my head, but it's really (laughs) not connecting, you know? Uh, Yeah. I
0: mean, our theater making process is actor it's it's not quite devised theater um but it's but actors we involve actors in the process very very early on and then we'll go away and work on the script without them based on what we've learned from them and then we'll go back into like we're working on a major new documentary play commission for the public right now and we're about to go into our third major workshop, right? The first one we started, it was a two week workshop that we did when we came back from West Virginia. It's about the play is about the upper big branch mine disaster in West Virginia in 2010. We came back with raw transcripts, which we started the first workshop with. We got from raw transcripts to monologues and a structure for the sort of middle third of the play by the end of two weeks. Then we went away and worked on it and created the beginning. And then there was a, the CEO was put on trial. So we thought, Oh, maybe we need to go into his trial transcripts and look at that. So we had a whole other workshop where we dealt with trial transcripts and then realized, Oh, really? No, actually, that's not the core of the story. And so then we went back and did another major rewrite on our own. And the um, there's original music is being written for the play by, uh, by Steve Earle, who's an incredible country musician, singer, songwriter. Um, And we're about to go into, now that the script is in decent shape, a big workshop to put the music in. right? So, And all of these stages, we're getting feedback. We're hearing from the actors. We're in collaborative creative process all the way along. We're getting notes from the artistic director, all of that. So it's never when in our theater making process, it is very rarely us alone at the computer. When we're writing for television or we're writing screenplay, it's a different story.
1: Yeah, I mean, actors must love you. I I had someone um, on the podcast who I worked with. Uh, I did the second season of of Goliath on Amazon, and this guy Lawrence Trilling, who I had worked with a little bit before on Parenthood. I we talked about how, how collaborative he was as a director opinionated, you know, and he's, he's pointed that out. He said, look, I, cause I said, you're, you're such a, you know, you're so collaborative and you're so open. And he's like, well, I'm not just, you know, he, he is, he's opinionated, but he, he brought a sense of play and a sense of ownership to all of us. So, so that we would go in with ideas and he would say, yeah, just try it and I'll pull you back if I need to. And it, it empowers." me as an actor, so much to work in that way. And I'm just imagining your actors must be willing to put their heads through, you know, plate glass windows for you because you're giving them, you're giving them ownership over their roles. And it's, and it's a smart way to lead because obviously you guys are doing the research and have your, uh, your opinions on story and ultimately you're crafting it, but to get the input. So the actor feels like, oh, my my thoughts my creative version of this character is 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 worth something to them as they write it it's 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 incredibly empowering so i would Absolutely. imagine your well, actors I'm actually- dig you sorry go ahead no i was just saying i would imagine your actors must be having a blast working with you in that way
0: we have we run a fun room and we're actors too so you know it's all it's all sort of the circus. We're all in the circus together in there, you know. And and what you're talking about really is part of our leadership style too. I mean, we had we made our first feature a couple of years ago, um, and we're developing our second one now. But that this was a really interesting thing to for us to learn as film directors too, because we brought the same ethos. I mean, we really believe that if we're in a room with somebody as a collaborator that what they're bringing to the table is a crucial and important part of the project right and to do, we we made our movie in LA and it was like it was an interesting thing sort of training in our department heads on like this is how we work like actually if we're acting asking your opinion about like whether something is doable we're actually asking your opinion we're not trying to like manipulate you in some weird way or like (laughs) if you ask for something and you know because of your expertise that that's actually not doable given the constraints that we have like we're not gonna be mad at you if you say we can't do that Right? right i mean Everybody was so used to this sort of top-down authoritarian leadership structure where like there's an auteur at the top and they tell everybody what to do and everybody else is just there to execute their vision. And the way we lead is like the opposite of that. It's collaborative leadership. It's like there's, there's a lot of choice making in terms of the team you put together, right? But once you've made those choices, you have to trust the people you're working with.
1: Well, I, I'm imagining you already have this book. If you don't, I'm sending it to you. It's probably the the book that I give more than any other book. Uh, Sidney Lumet making movies. Yes, Are,
0: we do yeah, have okay. it. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah. you. It sounds like you live by it. I love, <laughs> love, love the way he says at the end of each chapter. We were all making the same movie, and yeah. that's that's what I said to Larry when when we we sat down uh, for ten thousand No's. I said, I. What I I love that style because you would go to the prop master and they had story in mind and you would talk to hair and makeup and you know there was like a there was like a, a an approach to the facial <laughs> hair in the you know I mean it was every <laughs> single aspect was. Helping me, the actor, along. My wardrobe was—I had, had incredible conversations with the costume designer about the character, and it's—it's and it's just such a nice environment to work in when everybody is firing and everybody feels like they're contributing. It's—it's it's so alive as opposed to I've been on the other side of it where it's not that way at all, and—and and that is, you know, a rougher place to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I think I'm a big believer that for the most part, with a few notable exceptions, that collaborative leadership style where everybody is empowered in the way you're talking about actually also produces better work because everybody is doing their best. Everybody is working under ideal or, you know, best possible creative conditions. And so they're more fully expressed and that multiplies the potentiality for what the work can be.
1: Yeah. I also think that they feel accountable. I think when when you're being asked your opinion, you feel accountable. You bring your better game to to play, really, because you you're like, "Oh, they're actually, you know, I think what happens in the in the opposite environment is that people check out and then mm-hmm. they they bring a shadow version of themselves and then like this poisonous cynicism kind of It gets onto the set and then it just becomes a place that, you know, that is toxic and and people don't, aren't really happy there and they're not doing great work and, um, you know, just not as, as, as much fun or as good, I don't think. Right. Absolutely. Um, Well, listen, I want to be, I mean, unless you're going to tell me you have another two hours to talk, I want to be mindful of your time. I have, uh, I have a little... Um, kind of pop quiz I've been doing with my guests for the last I don't know how many episodes, and I want to do it with you if you're okay. Of course. Um, so the first, the first one, it's it's three three things. The first one is complete this sentence. The word "no" actually means what?
0: I've got something better for you.
1: Hmm. I like that. Um. Okay right now, right off the bat, first thing that comes to you, the first book, film, song, or quote that that comes to you, or lyric, could be anything like that, that comes to you, and why?
0: Oh, wow. That's great. That's like total free association. Well, when you said book, I, I didn't know what the rest of the question was going to be. So I thought of my first favorite book, which is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, which I think I've I believe I read like 30 times when I was child (laughs) Um, and it's an incredible book. Um, The movie's good, but the book is much better than the movie. And, you know, Essie Hinton was a teenage girl when she wrote that book. And I think one of the reasons it was made into a Hollywood movie is because it has exquisite narrative structure with incredible characters that are totally three-dimensional and, Another reason why that book is so powerful is because of its authenticity, right? Because she was working with such incredible craft, but writing in such an immediate way that was so true and so connected to the world that she was writing about. I think because she was a teenage girl, even though she had to publish it under a pseudonym because nobody would have knowingly published anything by a 16-year-old girl back then.
1: That's incredible that she was 16 when she wrote that. Yeah. Oh my God. Were you more of a, a greaser or a soche?
0: Oh, definitely a greaser. Yeah. For sure.
1: <laughs> I gotta i gotta I read that, but I read it so long ago. I got I've gotta revisit it. Yeah, it's worth really um, re- revisiting
0: I, it's a great book. It's yeah, really- I
1: need to revisit the movie too. I haven't seen that since I, I don't even remember the last time I saw it. Um okay, the last one I have for you here is uh if you could give your younger self advice what age would you choose to intervene and what would the advice be?
0: Oh my God. Wow. Um, I mean, I could go so many different places with that that question. Um, But I think actually, I mean, in line with the conversation that we're having today, I would probably talk to my like 23, 24 year old self and tell her that you don't have to just be one thing. I would tell her to let go of what I call the Mozart model of creative genius, where you do only one thing and you only care about that one thing and you have blinders on to everything else. And that's what it means to be a real artist. And if you're not that, you're not devoted to your art. I was definitely inundated with that messaging as a young artist and always felt like there was something sort of lacking or that I wasn't moving fast enough or achieving things quickly enough or anything because I didn't have that like child prodigy, single focus thing ever in how I approached my art. And I remember in my early twenties being really freaked out by that. And feeling very inadequate because of it. And now, of course, it's been enough years that I'm doing all the things and I'm clearly a hyphenate and it's all happening. Right. So I think I would have told her something about like, you don't have to do just one thing. And also that if you do more than one thing, it takes a little longer for it all to accumulate. And that's okay.
1: It's fascinating you're saying that because this the the timeliness of it. I'm reading a book right now called The One Thing, which is all about you know, kind of honing in on what it is you're doing and and not spreading yourself too thin. And I feel like I identify with you, and I always have in terms of, you know, people would say if you can do anything else, then you should be doing that. You shouldn't be an actor. And I was always like, well, like I think I could do a couple of other things. You know, like I did okay in school, and I like like there, I have a lot of different interests, and 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 so I have, I I really identify with that. That it does seem like it's it's taken longer, but it's at this stage of the game where things are starting to converge. All these different interests of mine have started to converge, and they feel like they've they're becoming, uh, the sum is greater than the parts, you know? Um, so that's actually kind of nice to hear you saying that. It makes me feel a little less alone in the way I've kind of, uh, I've kind of operated. Um, and, and I just, you know, usually I like to get into people's origin a little bit. I, I hate that we didn't get to get to your childhood, but I'm really grateful for what just popped into the conversation and I really wanted to go there which is just your um your your interpretation of story and how you work on story that we you know spent probably 20 or 25 minutes talking about it was just uh so educational and I I hope that listeners who are not necessarily storytellers professionally can see the value of story and and creation of story in your lives, like whether it's, you know, it's telling your own story to the world, I think is really important. So what you do, I think it branches out further than just the art form of storytelling.
0: Absolutely. Because it's about how we communicate and what story does is it actually enables us to empathize with and put ourselves in the shoes of people who are different from us, right? It actually story is the bridge builder, right? So in any field, if you're trying to communicate with people in ways that build bridges and ways that onboard them in ways that get them, that move them and get them excited about something, the communication modality to do that in is story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Jessica Blank. Thank you so much for for being here with us. And I'm gonna put stuff. I'm gonna put links in the show notes to Jessica's uh, various projects. But do you want to tell everybody anything that you have upcoming? Like like right now, the the next thing they can look out for from from yeah, you guys. Absolutely.
0: I have a bunch of things upcoming, of course, because I'm working on a million things at once um, and a lot of stuff in the pipeline. But the best thing for people to do is I try to keep my website updated with like everything that's happening. Um, which is com. The C is important because there is a JessicaBlank.com out there too, and she is not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the the thing that's really upcoming soon is that I'm launching this course from actor to creator in the first weeks of November. And then I'm relaunching my online story structure master course in January. So that stuff will be up on my website and all of my creative work is up on my website too. Um, you can buy my books there. It's like, you know, I try to keep it comprehensive and, um, and I'm also really active on Instagram. My Instagram is Jessica C blank. And so I try to keep that up to date with everything that's happening. Okay. And I awesome. answer my DMS.
1: If oh, you good. Want. <laughs> okay, good. So so reach, reach out to her if you're as fascinated as I am. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much. And uh, I really, really appreciate you sitting down with me.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Wow, that was a masterclass. And as you know, I like to give my top takeaways. So here we go. One, Jessica said, you never know when those other supportive factors are going to want to converge around your work and they don't if you don't take the first step. That's kind of the through line here at 10,000 No's. You need to take a step to get through the nose to get to the occasional yeses. There's no way around it. Doesn't always lead to fame and fortune, but sometimes it hits in a big way, and it will never hit if you never try. Number two, the way Jessica and Erica lead Is collaborative leadership a lot of choice in terms of putting the team together? But once you've made those choices, you have to trust the people that you're working with, and that actually produces better work because people feel empowered and bring their A game. Very important. Number three, Jessica said, Talent doesn't exist, it's about craft and learning how to work with specific tools. I love this. Now, I slightly disagree. Because I feel the talent does play some part, even if it's just the talent of focus and perseverance. But I'm very much in agreement that the craft needs to be worked on and there are tools that can be learned. And most people use talent or or the fact that, according to them, they don't have any talent as an excuse. You just have to do the work. All right. That's all for this week. If you found this inspiring or entertaining or educational, please tell some friends about it. Best way to do that is take a screenshot of the episode on your phone, share it to social media, tagging at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter or Facebook, or just text your friends or talk about it. If you tell two people and they tell two people, this whole 10,000 nose movement is going to be even bigger than it already is, and I believe that's a good thing for the world. I hope you agree. If you're feeling particularly inspired and you want to send us a video testimonial, we can post Email it to info at 10000 noscom That would be awesome. If you've yet to rate us on iTunes, please give us five stars. Tell people what it is you're getting from the show. If Jessica was up your alley, go check out my past conversations with Mark Duplass, Lawrence Trilling, Eric Christian Olsen, or Kimmy Culp. A lot of similar themes. Next Friday, I'd be on the lookout for pro soccer player turned pastor, Jesse Bradley, who almost died before leading his current church with amazing faith. And like I said, we're slowly rolling out some very cool 10000 notes journals so you can start writing your own story as well as really cool T-shirts and some awesome baseball caps later in the year. For now, have a great week and put these principles to practice. See you next week.